Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. Today we're gonna to cover a topic which many startups probably try to ignore as long as possible because of the implications that it has and also because it's kind of scary and that's cybersecurity. Today we have uh, from Trezor, a service provider here based in London, Jamie and Mariella, the founders. Thanks for joining us guys. Nice to join you, Carlos. As uh, we always like to do here, let's start off with your backgrounds. Maybe a little bit about the story behind Trezor and maybe the story behind why you guys came together. Yeah, so I guess the story of Trezor kind of starts kind of starts right back when I was young. So I've always had an interest in computers from being really young. So I used to take take apart pretty much every device I had in the house and rebuild it, trying to learn how the technical components work. Um, I, I guess it kind of evolved on from that. I started to build my own computers. I taught myself programming. I then started to reverse engineer software to understand how it works. It's all like at a really young age. So I was just extremely driven, extremely curious by how things worked. Um, fast forward, I guess, on through that probably a decade to school and college. Um, I then, I then had a really tough choice to make at university. So my passion was always in information technology and in understanding computers. But I realized that if I studied that, I probably would end up working with someone else and probably end up being a tool, a cog in a wheel, rather than being, being owning the organization. So instead of doing IT, I chose business management instead. Um, after three years studying, I learned quite a lot about corporate management, but probably the biggest thing I learned was I didn't want to be in a corporate. So I went back to school and I did a master's in entrepreneurship. Um, that was another year. After that, um, I started a digital agency in Manchester. So this is kind of the start of my professional digital journey. Um, we built, we, over a few years, we built over 100 web apps, um, clients in US, Europe, Asia, moved to New York. And while there was when I met Mariella. So we were working on a, a real estate platform at the time. And that's, that's the point where we decided to partner on a new venture. So I've been thinking about this idea for a while. That was for a cybersecurity company. And that's where, where I pitched it to Mariella and brought her on board as a partner. Um, and I guess you can take it from there. Yeah. Um, so what I did before, um, before we started uh, Tresor Security in London was that I studied business management as well in Munich. Didn't really enjoy it that much. So after two years, I transferred to Edinburgh and uh, studied sustainable management, which um, I was very interested in. I'm still very interested in sustainable management. I graduated, uh, went back to Munich. I couldn't find a job there because sustainable management, there was no roles um, back then. And my first, I got my first job at an IT consultancy. And uh, one of my first projects was an ISO 27001 implementation. So for the listeners maybe who don't know ISO 27001, that's an international standard for information security management systems. And the company, the IT consultancy I worked for, they just kicked off their certification. So basically over a year, or I helped, uh, assisted in, in the implementation process. And um, my experience was that it, w- it was quite, it was a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of processes involved uh, there was a process, I will never forget that one, called uh, Process 86. And that was a description of how to clean the coffee machine at the end of the day. So I kind of realized, and in for information security, so that really doesn't have to do anything with that, but still they just love processes. And I realized that I, I don't want to do that and it's not so much fun. So after a year, I moved on to New York. Yeah, that's where I met Jamie because he was building the tech and I was um, working on the creative side. And uh, yeah, I really, I knew I wanted to do something 
my own or with a partner. And uh, when Jamie said uh, cybersecurity, I was a bit hesitant because I don't have a technical background. I do have a bit of compliance, but not not really um, coding or IT. But I just figured that uh, I do I do really like compliance, and I figured that there must be a different way, like a different way to what I've experienced. And yeah, so I partnered up. We went to London. So maybe as a way of continuing the audience's uh, understanding of what it is that your firm does, could you walk us through a little bit of how it differs from the TV show Mr. Robot? Because you see a lot of things there in that show that potentially are things that people have as a preconceived notion of what the job involves. You know, there's a scenario, obviously, when a large client gets hacked and, you know, Jamie, maybe that's you flying over to the site and, and taking care of that. Or maybe it isn't. Maybe it's more about the compliance and maybe it's more about planning. Walk us through how real life for you guys is different from the TV show, Mr. Robot. Yeah, so incident management is is inevitably a part of what we do, which is like the stuff you see on Mr. Robot. So something massive happens, crisis level, and every, it's like all hands on deck. But I'd say the majority of what we do is not not dealing with that. That's exciting. It makes great TV. But the majority of that is kind of preparing and stop that that event from happening in the first place, really. So having good good process in place, having good good controls to stop, say, someone wiping out your backups in seven different data locations in the, across the world. Um, so having really good contingency measures in place. And I guess the technology is always the first starting point of that. Um, but that debt then inevitably comes onto people and processes, which is kind of Mariela's expertise domain, right? Yeah, I guess um, just thinking back since we started Tresor Security, there was n- there's incidents, yeah, but there was we don't really focus on debt, and and there's no such thing as Mr. Robert. What I mostly see, and Carlos, that's what we discussed at our last meeting, is that some incidents or a majority of incidents could have been avoided if there were right policies and procedures in place. So just to give you an example, um, we had a client and one of their partners or founders left and the other remaining founders forgot to take away their e- the email access and, and the Trello account and, and all other tools. And um, basically what happened is that the other founder, who was a bit upset, still had access to very sensitive company data. And luckily, nothing happened. But that would have been a major security or an incident. And that is just because there was no access policy in place. So um, so really what we're trying to do is not only with technology, but also involve people and processes in terms of information security. All right. Well, let's, let's play with the idea of policies as, a, as something that people could think about earlier. When do you think is the right time because I would imagine that three guys coming up with policies for security would seem a bit heavy handed but maybe it it depends on other factors maybe it depends with the kind of data that the startup is dealing with walk us through how you help startups of all sizes determine their their policy needs yeah i guess the first thing that we do or we suggest doing is that that we ask the company um, what kind of data they're storing, where they're storing the data, how they're storing the data, and what they why they're using this type of data. And then let's say a company is dealing with sensitive personal information that could be passports or um, credit cards, etc. And then uh, we say even when people think of policies, they think of like a hundred page document that that is written in an, in a very um, legal non-understandable way but what we say is that when you know what data you need to protect 
you can do a basic risk assessment and, and just think of get transparency. And from there, you can establish a set of maybe three, four, five policies, depending on what you need, and just keep them one or two pages. That really explains um, basic principles like user access, for instance, data protection in general. It could include physical environment, so where you store your data. And you really around this, this basic risk assessment, you do one policy at a time and then maybe you start it with two or even just with one, which could be a general information security policy. And then the bigger your company gets, the more policies you can then introduce. Yeah. So walk us through the key data challenges in different industries. I know that there is, you know, the US there's HIPAA, but maybe walk us through if you're a startup and you're working in these sectors, you better start thinking about security from day one. Okay, I guess the first thing to say and, and probably the most important is that it's the at the moment it's the Data Protection Act from 1998 and that is really applicable to every organization, government and business that stores or holds or processes any personal information. That means it's really it's, it's nearly every startup. And even if you don't handle clients or customer data, you'll probably have your your own data and your your teams or your team members, your employees' data. So compliance to Data Protection Act is 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 the first first baseline, the first um, security uh, baseline criteria. And the Data Protection Act, there's eight key principles around data protection. For instance, make sure that the data is uh, uh, kept safely. You only use it for a certain uh, your specific purpose. Only use it for a certain amount of time. Make sure the data is accurate. So it's just guiding principles. Uh, so, but now, and that that is really important for every startup, uh, is that will be the new the data general data protection regulation. It's a European law. It it and it is every European company needs to comply, but also every company that is storing data on European citizens. I often get asked, well, what about Brexit? So what we say is with Brexit, but until Brexit happens, we have another two years, but now companies need to start complying. So we spoke to lawyers and we guessed that even after Brexit, the UK will keep this new regulation. And then also, um, even if the United Kingdom is not part of the European Union, how can you guarantee that you don't store any data of any European citizen? So, because for me, for instance, I'm Austrian. If I'd use your app in London, how can you say that, that I'm Austrian? So, so basically, GDPR is really for every startup here in the UK. But what does that look like in terms of actual implementation? Because you mentioned three examples out of the eight and you're, you're saying that there's going to be a more rigorous approach coming up soon. What's that actually mean? I mean, for example, does that mean that you just use Dropbox and you can assume that Dropbox is good enough? I know they got hacked recently or their mm -hmm. passwords got spread out on the internet recently, but you know, generally speaking, Dropbox is pretty safe and, and, and Amazon is pretty safe. So what exactly does that mean? In practice, um, in in practice, it means that with the new GDPR, even you you as a as a startup who stores data in the cloud are responsible if the cloud gets breached. So it, it will be the cloud provider and you as a startup. So what that means is you really need to make sure that they have accreditation, that they they have security measures in place, because before then you weren't really liable for it because you just outsourced it. Your, your hosting or data storage, but now you're um, liable for for any incidents that happen along your data and along your um, and service how, how level. How have you seen startups adapting to that preemptively? 
as a way of preventing that kind of liability? What, what kind of additional measures are you recommending because of that? Yeah, I guess a good idea is to, to start. So you obviously trust, let's say you find a good uh, cloud hosting provider who has, for instance, ISO 27001 accreditation. So that, that is really, that's proof that you do your due diligence because you trust that an efficient an international standard is, um, is, obviously, is, good, is good enough at this point. But additionally, you're going to look at your own, as I said before, your own data and, and how you transfer it so that the data transfer encryption maybe maybe jamie can extending it one step further than just your cloud provider i mean most startups right now are using aws or google or azure um, and they're using these platforms because they have all these security measures in place but really you need to start thinking about the third-party services you integrate with so that might be some some analytics tool or um, it might be a marketing tool whatever tools you're plugging into your site or whatever dependencies your site has those are really the providers you need to look at. And a lot of those guys don't have the same level of certification as, as the cloud providers. So those are the ones that are most likely to have, have an incident just yesterday, a huge enterprise uh, login tool called, oh, I won't mention them by name, <laughs> but huge enterprise login tool had an, an incident where they stored their, their customers' secure notes uh, unencrypted for, for a period of several months. So there's, there's, it's definitely looking at your kind of ecosystem, what tools and services go into your product. Um, so obviously your cloud is important, but also what other third-party dependencies you have there. Okay, so if I, if I assume that that's a, a key component of what you guys offer, is it, would it be safe to say, therefore, that like the beginnings of somebody engaging with you guys would be in assessing how the product vision integrates all these different third-party providers and delivers on these certifications. Is that kind of a rough summary of what, what a lot of what you do at the very beginnings of an engagement? Yeah, definitely. Like the one of the first things we're we're looking at is is where where the company wants to put itself, um, where where they kind of see their product evolving. So if they want to become the biggest, most connected service um, in fintech, for example, then they need to really be looking at answering all these questions very early on because they're going to have to build these security measures in at the start. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to get those contracts later on, and they're not going to be able to scale the way that they want to. What um, is the biggest mistake you have seen whenever you engage with a new company? Like you walk in and you're like, you left a refrigerator open again? You know, what kind of equivalent sort of knee-jerk reaction is, is the one that you frequently find yourself in when you take on a new customer? I guess what I see and what I pay a lot of attention is to, to the people in the company. Because um, we, we just spoke a bit about technology and processes, but what's really important is the people. So if a lot of companies don't have a security awareness so that the employees or, or team members don't know why they should use two-factor authentication. So they, they really don't understand that they have a responsibility because they have access to data. That That's one of my biggest things. Yeah, I'd say on a more technical level, definitely people just not having the basics in place and never testing their, their security on their site, for example. So often it'll take less than 15 minutes for us to access customer data on a client site um, when we first engage with them, just because they haven't really tested it. They have never had anyone look over their, their code. Um, so you don't need to do a penetration test, just kind of ask another developer, can you have a look at this and see how I've implemented this? Does this, does this look secure to you? Um, you don't need to be an expert. Um, that's one thing we, we 
kind of educate a lot is developers don't need to become security experts, but they should at least have an awareness of, say, the OWASP top 10 and how that applies to their platform. So I, from a technical level, I definitely see a lot of a lot around that. All right, so let's flip the question. What do the smart companies get right? Um, I guess uh, to start out is that they know that they know that they hold valuable data, that they're they're transparent, that the founders are totally on board, so that they because sometimes you we we write policies and um, they get implemented, but but the founders don't really stick to the rules, so that that's a big no. But so the what smart companies got right is that everyone is on board, everyone understands why we're doing this, everyone is. Uh, motivated and brings in new ideas and then also they try to continuously improve their security management. So let's talk a little bit about that, about people and processes a little bit because, you know, security, as, as you mentioned earlier, is broken out into two parts, right? There is uh, doing um, diligence on APIs, how they interconnect, the security of data, encryption, all the technical components, right? But then policies kind of govern the people component. And it's not just about sort of compliance, which is like, am I sourcing this right provider? It's also about how you build a product that allows for certain security things to be done seamlessly, whether it be through how you get people to interact or what kind of information you don't ask because you don't need it and it puts you in a liable situation. So walk us through how, uh, Marielle, how you work with a client to build an appropriate set of policies, that both that create compliance, but also that just reduce risk. Yeah. What we normally do, or what I normally do is after I got, like I get an overview of the company, I, I sometimes go in just for half a day and work from the offices because I really like to see their interaction. I see um, if they, for instance, if they just leave their desk with a screen unlocked, just really basic things that you don't particularly say uh, see when you're just coming in for a meeting, but really be in the company. And then um, I normally sit down with, with the founders or with whoever is in charge of um, information security. In our cases, when we work with startups, it's mostly the COO or someone operational. And then from there, we we'll just we, we ask certain questions that include like physical um that the environment and as I said before you access uh, user access then um, so just just to get a basic understanding of if they even have something in place and and what what they want to go and from there we look at the product or software because we mostly work with with tech startups and they're building something so it's really important that we integrated this in the policies which could for instance be every developer who has access to personal to data on the software needs to get a bit of extra training something like that and from there once we've established like a baseline we start rolling or working out one one policy at a time but what is really important and what I really don't like is when when we're like when we roll out a lot of policies at a time so I'd rather do it over a long period make sure that everyone on the team understands what it says and then, um, and then also some companies just download a toolkit and, and change their name. But what's really, really important when writing a policy is that you need to, to write it in your language, in the company's language. So in your culture, so that your employees really understand and that it, it reflects your company culture. Do you, do you want to walk us through? An example of, of a policy that you worked on recently, like maybe something that doesn't sound, uh, obvious, but something that has been super 
influential in reducing reducing a company's risk. Just walk us through an example. Okay. Uh, I guess one of my favorites is is the user access policies. That's why I've mentioned it quite a lot. Um, so an example would be, so user access, you first look at what how, what do you do before a person starts? So let's say you you, uh, you hire a new team member. So you look at where does the team member needs to have access to? What do we need to restrict? So does he need admin privileges, yes or no? Um, and then you just start from there. Then through during the, the employment, um, you look at at certain, well, it's not during the employment, it, it should just make sense that everyone has access to the information that they need, but don't give them more that they don't need because we really try to make keep the surface as small as possible. And then also at the end of the employment, make sure that, like, for instance, at the last uh, at the last day of the employment, you take away access to to even the building. Like some some people don't give back their key cards to to the building, to um, to the platform if you work on a platform, to email accounts and everything. And if if you just if the right person has access to the right information and to the required information, a lot of uh, data breaches can be avoided. Yeah, but how do you how do you control that in an age where there's a lot of bring your own devices and there is a lot of um, multiple installs on things that sometimes mean that when somebody walks out the organization, they've already downloaded, you know, via IMAP or POP, you know, tons of sensitive information. How do you even do that without at the same time creating an environment that's almost too draconian and, and too, too stifled? Uh, that's a good question. Um, so what we, what is a re- really good idea is, um, uh, well, first of all, every, and that, that happens with startup a lot, that they share logins. So every person needs to have their unique login, even if it's more work for you to set it up. Every person should have one credential to log in. Then it's easier to take it away at the, at the end. And then also with bring your own devices. So, um, there's, of course, the risk that, um, they get, they, the devices are not patched. There is no antivirus on. They get a virus that goes into your network. Um, so having a, BYOD policy that states that, for instance, your device needs to have daily antivirus scan, you should have two-factor authentication, etc. So that's like a good starting point. And then from there, you can, well, you can go down into more detail, but... Um, well, an example that we see for that is having a basic data classification scheme. So you don't need to have 15 different categories, just having like director or founder level and having an employee level. So that might be as simple as having two different folders, shared folders in Dropbox, one shared folder between all the founders and one shared folders between the founders and the employees. So just by having that that simple control level there, you're automatically going to exclude a lot of a lot of sensitive information from everyone being have access to and really kind of only limit that to people that need to on a need to know basis. Mm. Maybe maybe switching the conversation back to sort of Hollywood's version of what you do. Walk us through the kinds of scenarios that somebody would expect uh, to help have you guys help them with. So, for example, in, in the TV show, there's a denial of service attack on Evil Corp. You know, it's like, are you going to prevent denial of service attacks? Um, what you know, the the I think the dreaded thing that most startups have is you know, hey, I got hacked. You know, here's your information online or your pictures or your whatever it is that you uploaded, you know, your dating profile, whatever. So what, what are the kinds of things that, from a technical perspective, one can expect from a, a firm like yours in order both to prevent it, but also to t- take care of it? 
Yeah, so it's it's a really good good analogy and a very good question. And I, when it comes to things like like uh, distributed denial of service, is quite easy measures as even a startup can put in place, like using Cloudflare for example, um, provides an extra layer of resilience for 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 DDoS attacks. Um, it's it's possible actually for small companies to suffer from this. It just depends if someone's willing willing enough to kind of attack you, and it doesn't cost very much. It can cost hundred dollars to take down a site for a day. So it's it's now becoming like a mainstream weapon if even like disgruntled employees. So um, that's that's definitely a factor, but you can control against that that risk easily with, with something like a, a cloud-based solution. Okay, but what what is it that um, generally has been the reason for startups getting their data hacked? So if, if DDoS is one angle, which is mostly your data might still be safe, it's just you can't access it. But the other sort of more evil cousin of DDoS is, you know, you literally have had a compromise. Yeah. What are the general ways that you have seen startups getting compromised that um, by sharing with sort of the larger audience here, you might be able to prevent that from happening? So un- unfortunately, that's kind of been the same list as it's been for the last 10 years, which is the OWASP top 10. So that's kind of stayed pretty... Walk, walk us through those. Uh, okay, so, so the number one, which is like the, the most obvious and the one that usually hurts the hardest is injection. So this is usually some form of uh, like database query that an attacker will use to, to either manipulate data or to extract data from the database. So usually what this means is they'll be able to access all the records in the data and dump it out. So a lot of high profile breaches, TalkTalk, for example, was an SQL injection. Um, so th- this on this level, that's pretty much dumping all the data out. Another thing we're seeing a lot of uh, more recently is open APIs or APIs that don't properly authorize users. So it's not uncommon for us to see. So I'm logged into the, the application. I have an API. I can call my user. It's quite easy to change my user ID and access someone else's data. This is really common or even access all users' data. So this is, this is a, an increasingly a risk. So one of the first things we do is on the technical side is look at these basic risks. And we'll usually do what's called a penetration test, which is bring in an, an expert, uh, white hat hacker. So, just like Elliot serves in, in Mr. Robot when he's working at the company. He's he's a penetration tester and he's there to kind of report vulnerabilities to his clients uh, and help them to remediate it. He obviously has a darker side too. So basically going in and helping a client to address that. So that's usually a day doing a test and then providing them a report on what their developers need to fix. What are the other in the top 10? So other things that's that's really common are cross-site scripting. It's really, really popular. If you look on any of the, the big, what they call big bug bounty programs, so all the major corporations run a bug bounty program, which which basically allows um, hackers, good and bad, to, to inspect the site, try and hack it, and if they find something to report it, and they'll usually reward them financially for this. So one of the big ones that come comes up is cross-site scripting, which is basically... Um, putting code where it shouldn't be able to and allowing allowing the user to do actions they shouldn't be able to. Okay. Any others? Um, I don't know. I mean, the, the best thing to do, if you want to get a good overview of the old wasp, is to bring bring in a penetration tester because they'll go through this um, probably over 100 different um, techniques they'll try out to try and get into your site. So if you say just focused on two or three, you would really not have 
coverage you need. So every example that you've given me so far has focused mostly on people coming to a site and interacting with that site. But how about when you're a startup that's offering up an API for others to use? How do you help them think through a smart way of securing so that you reduce the risk there? So that's definitely that definitely has an attack surface similar to a website. Um, so an API also things that, that we test. And I think the main, the main downfall when it comes to API is usually around authorization. So, so authentication is checking that a person is who they say they are. So having a valid username and password, that's usually pretty solid. Um, it's not usually something that developers write themselves. But authorization is a business logic decision. So should this person be able to access this or should this person be able to update this record? So that because that's written by programmers and it's decided in business logic and it can often change in a startup, it can often have incorrect permissions. So so you'll usually be able to access other users' data. You shouldn't be able to, um, or again, come back to the other example, access all users' data via the API. So APIs are really one of often one of the weaknesses of, of a company, actually. The, the, just kind of mid, to try and mitigate that, um, the best thing you do is use like an established framework to, to manage that API, like, like Grape API, or you use whatever platform you're using, whether that's Ruby or, or PHP or, or Go or, or Node. Use the, the tools and the frameworks within there to build your API rather than trying to write it yourself. When it comes to authentication, you know, we've, we've covered up several, we've talked about it several times. And obviously social logins provide quite a shortcut for people to not have to have a huge burden. What is your view or, you know, I, I'm not up to speed on this, but what is the latest in terms of your view regarding social logins for both sensitive data type services, but also just for general companies? Which social logins are, are probably safer than others and just general best practices there? Yeah, so I, I think in terms of social logins, you're kind of, you're then depending on that as being your weakest link. Um, and often someone say they'll have a, a very basic password for their Facebook or their Twitter just because they're using those services often and, and most people don't use password managers. So they'll have a basic password that's probably reused throughout. So let's say it's your medical record. You definitely wouldn't want to authenticate your medical record with your Facebook login because it's probably your spouse knows it or um, it's quite easy to be able to obtain that data. You've probably used it elsewhere. Could have been in a major data breach at some point. So it's for this highly sensitive records, it's definitely a better idea to... But if I'm reading into your answer, what you're saying is the risk with the social login isn't so much that the process of handoff between... The, the provider like Facebook and your site. It's more on the, the likelihood is that the person is already compromised at the Facebook level. So by the time you do get around to the social login process, it's, it's you, you have lost credibility on that login. Exactly. So the OAuth 2 process, which, which Facebook used to authenticate your details is, is very, very solid. And there's not really any attacks you can do against that. But the most likely is your password itself is going to be compromised. So again, the password becomes the weak link in, in the chain. And that's what we see a lot. I think something like 99% of enterprise level breaches were done through a compromised username and password. So that's like one of the biggest factors because and password is really not a strong factor. And that's why you'll see in, in, in the cyber world or also you'll start to see this in more the tech world is people trying to come up with better solutions to authenticate. So touch ID on, on the iPhone or fingerprint recognition of Samsung or iris recognition. So all these can, and I had the new MacBooks coming out in a few days that's going to have Touch ID built into as well. So better ways to authenticate than just the password, which is is 
is is kind of become the de facto standard, but also not not a very good one. Mm. Okay, cool. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and um, you know, it's it's great to get your views on these things, and perhaps you can just give us a little bit of an overview of how people usually engage with you. What does a typical engagement look like? Is it is it you know pay per hour, or is it like pay for like three months worth? Of, it sounds like you, Mariella, show up to people's offices. So like, <laughs> well, what does this I mean, look like? Just so that people can kind of get a feeling for maybe how to engage with a firm like yours and when's the right time. And, and you know, if we're doing this podcast as a way of evangelizing this in, in a way, what is entry cost? Some companies come to us because they need to get, um, so they want to get certification. So um, in general, if, if the starting point for you is when you have sensitive data, when you sort of ready to face your customers, so you put your product, you're in the beta or you have users. So basically when you actually store data or uh, deal with, with sensitive data, then you should definitely do something about it. So I guess starting off is um, what I quickly want to mention. There's a, a government-backed scheme called uh, Cyber Essentials. So it, it is a really uh, short um, five it, well, it's a certification. It, it can be done in one or two days, depending on what what, poli- um, what policies or what um, controls you want to have in place. And it kind of like deals uh, around secure configuration. You have a firewall, patching. So it's like basic security standards. And the cost is is for startups really good. It's two hundred fifty pounds. And then um, you have your baseline, so that that would I could recommend that to every company. And even if you want to be supplier to the government, you have to have it. Barclays, HSBC, they all doing it now as well. So that's like a really good starting point. And from there, depending on what data you want to protect or what data you hold, you can always go with ISO twenty seven thousand and one and um, or IASMI, uh, which is like a mini ISO. And um, so basically, that that is from the compliance and policy people part. And then, of course, as Jamie said, like the pen test, which is if it's a not too complex um, platform or application, it can be done in one and a half, one, one, one and a half days, one day testing, half a day reporting. Yes, yeah, so that's usually the entry point for the most organizations. Either they'll, they'll ask us uh, to help them with certification or um, their internal processes, or they'll ask us on the technical side, something like a penetration test which starts from about a thousand pounds. So, and that's, that's to get a very comprehensive overview of platform and you're developing then take that back, work on the changes and, and hopefully improve the security of your platform. Mm. And do you guys do uh, network architecting as well as a, as a sort of knock on effect of the audit might show up? Yeah. So often what we'll get back from the, the pen test might be indications of, of, uh, more of big, bigger root causes rather than just being like those one line of code here. It might be, say, the platform itself is not built in a way um, that provides for, for a high level of security. So in those cases, we might look at the architecture of the application. So usually we, we consult on this. Um, it's included with a pen test. So after we've done the penetration test, we'll, we'll go through this root cause analysis, figure out where the things that might be improved, or maybe they can be, say, let's say you've developed your own um, key management system. There's, there's really good off the shelf key management systems there. We, so we probably recommend you implement one of those. And then when it comes to the, the last component, which is certified providers, do you guys help founders through that process of, you know, auditing, especially when you start dealing with international customers and international data? Do you provide that service as well? The sort of in effect shortcutting their internationalization plans 
so that they know where to go and how to manage that? Is that part of the service or not? Yeah, exactly. So that's one of the, the main things is taking a company right from, from kind of ground zero right to through to certifying whether that's with cyber essentials or as marilla mentioned iso 27001 which is kind of the gold standard of information security so we'll we'll hold hold the the company's hand all the way through that journey so helping them to identify what data they have how they're storing it and how to secure that whole process and then how to how to then take that to, to a wider scale so it's usually throughout that process you're looking at international laws regulations um, all the interested parties, whichever country they may be in, uh, as you know, under the privacy shield, that's kind of been a lot of issues around that. Now the GDPR. So evaluating all these laws and how they apply to your business, that's, that's one of the key things we do. Excellent. So there's a lot of investments in cybersecurity these days, and there's a lot of interest in, from the investor side of things. If you're wearing the hat of investor for a day, which parts of the cybersecurity value chain would you be putting your money on right now? Forget individual startups, just like which bits do you feel that are just not there that you think more innovation needs to, to happen? Yeah, this is like one of my favorite questions because I, I, I love like looking at all these, these ventures and a lot of really good initiatives. There's a lot of people building really cool tech, but I kind of feel like the basics are not there for the majority of companies, large and small. So when you have like very weak passwords and you don't have good access control to your system, it doesn't matter how good your firewall is or how advanced your algorithms are. Like it's still gonna, your system's still gonna have a breach. So unless you're doing the basics, you're not gonna get, you're not gonna benefit from these like next generation endpoint solutions, for example. So I, I think it's really good as innovation, but I kind of think they're a little bit ahead of, of the curve and that most companies don't have the basics in place. So basically you're saying is that you would invest in yourselves because that's what you guys do, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I think a company should definitely invest in itself. Like think, like sit down and think what they do, how do we hold it? And, and kind of ask themselves all these difficult questions rather than just going out there and putting a piece of software on that system. All right. Well, I, that wasn't designed to be an easy question, but I, 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 I see that you're not going to answer it in the other way. So let's, let's move to the rest of our fun questions. What's the one thing that you used to strongly believe that you know now you were fundamentally misguided about? Okay, I guess that, that can go with, with cybersecurity and IT. The belief was that there is actually Mr. Robert sitting in a basement trying to hack my startup or my company. And now I know or I see that the majority it is compliance processes, it's simple things. So it's not like this Hollywood attack. It, it really comes down to, to simpler uh, incidents and simpler breaches. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. So another another strong plug for working with you guys. <laughs> no. um, so controversial question to ask a security firm then. Have you ever been scammed? So I, I think there's, well, I, I don't know if scammed is the right word, but I've definitely been burnt a lot. Um, and that's just kind of, I guess, part of business is, and you learn this, it's part of your journey. So whether that's through business partners or, or customers or suppliers, so that kind of happens and you kind of learn from it and you, you learn to improve that. Looking back, I guess a lot of that was probably because I didn't didn't do say due diligence properly or think things through, and I, I just got very excited about making something happen and kind of looked over those kind of warning signs. So starting to heed the warning signs, but I think what's key, especially running a startup, is still to be innovative and don't don't let that kind of put you in clamshell mode. Um, so like we we push ourselves every day. We always get out there and, and challenge the industry, um, but kind of still be aware of that 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 you can't get burned if you're not 
careful. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us, guys. How would you like for people to get in touch with you? Email, phone call. No, if you just uh, send us an email at info at uh, We always give free advice. We love, love, love to, to work with startups and, and, and help them secure their data. Okay, until next time, guys. Bye.